How do you deal with the hardships that come with living this life? Some avoid pain by living for pleasure. Others grin and bear it in an attempt to overcome trouble. Well, neither of these methods ends up working in the end. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet program featuring the messages of Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. We take a break from our series in Romans to start an Easter study today with a message, an Easter sermon for unbelievers. In our prelude to Easter, we look at some crucial reasons to remember the resurrection, including how the finished work of Jesus Christ brings about true comfort in times of difficulty. Please turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 17, verse 29, and let's listen now together to Dr. Boyce. There are various ways that Christians think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's quite natural because the Bible itself presents the resurrection in a variety of lights. Quite often it's presented as evidence for the other doctrines. A preacher and teacher of a generation or so ago named Reuben Torrey used to speak on that subject in various parts of the world, often pointing out the number of things that the resurrection proves. He talked about the nature of God, for example. He said that the resurrection proves that the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the true God. And the reason for that is clear. That's the God that Jesus Christ proclaimed. He came in the traditions of Judaism with a full respect and defense of the Old Testament. He taught that the true God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who had revealed himself to the fathers and who had spoken in the Scriptures. And furthermore, he declared that this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would raise him from the dead. That seemingly is an impossible, irrational claim, but that's what happened. And so the resurrection becomes the seal of God himself upon Christ's teaching at that point. Same thing is true of his own deity. Jesus didn't merely teach that he was a prophet who would come to teach about God or even to show the way to God. He came proclaiming himself as the very Son of God, God in the flesh, he said to one of his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now that claim is not only irrational, if it's merely human, it's also blasphemous. A man claiming to be God, and yet this same God vindicated the claim by raising him from the dead. So Tory said, you have evidence of the deity of Jesus Christ in the resurrection as well. It's also evidence that his sacrifice on the cross was accepted by God the Father for our sin. That's what Paul is writing about in the fourth chapter of Romans when he says that Jesus was crucified for our sin and raised again for our justification. The justification, being made right with God, is on the basis of the death of Jesus Christ, but the evidence for it is in the resurrection. It would be one thing for Jesus to say, I'm going to die, and by my death I'm going to provide an atonement for the sin of all those who believe on me, so all who trust me might be saved. But if that was the end of it, anybody might easily say, yes, but how do we know that that death was accepted to God as an atonement? Everybody dies. Nothing remarkable about that. But then God raises Jesus from the dead, and we have 
evidence in his resurrection that that has been accepted. Torrey went on that way to talk about a great variety of other doctrines too. Now one thing the resurrection speaks to is unbelief, and it does it in terms of the final judgment. We live in a neo-pagan age, and it seems to me that that is the kind of message that needs to be preached in our day every bit as much as it did in the ancient world. A great example of that is the preaching that Paul did in Athens, a city that was noted for its pagan culture, however glorious it might be, but without any knowledge of the true God that was declared through Judaism. When Paul appeared in Athens and was invited to preach, he gave that great sermon that we have recorded in the 17th chapter. What I'm suggesting here today is that we need more preaching like that and that message exactly for the pagan times in which we live. Paul does talk about the resurrection, but it comes in at the very end of the message. And it comes in here not as proof of the nature of God or the deity of Jesus Christ or the nature of His atonement or the fact that it has been accepted by God for those who have faith in Him. It comes in rather as proof of a final judgment because Paul's words are these, He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising Him from the dead. Now, Athens was an interesting place. It was at the time Paul visited in what one historian has called the late afternoon of her glory. Athens had had a great golden age about 500 years before in which she rose to the pinnacle of world power and influence. The Persians were on the move in those days out of Iraq and Iran, as we call them today, and they invaded Greece twice, crossing over the Hellespont, near the city of Constantinople, and as they pressed down into Greece, the Greeks resisted them, fighting two great decisive battles, or these two great invasions. They turned them back. The Persians, on one of these invasions, managed to reach Athens. They destroyed the city, burning the homes, but the Greeks rebuilt them all and rebuilt them gloriously, and not only their homes, they rebuilt their temples. Those great ruins that are still there in Athens today were built in that period, including the great Parthenon. And not only did they rebuild their houses, they rebuilt their civilization. The Greeks established the first clear example of what we call a democracy. That's become a pattern for democracies in our own time. Fragile as they may be, but the Greeks did it. And not only that, they established a well-rounded civilization. This was the great period of Greek literature. All the great Greek plays were written at this time, and philosophy. Plato and Socrates lived in these days, and art. Praxiteles was the great sculptor that gave forms to much of the art that followed well down into the Renaissance and beyond. And yet, although Greece had been at this great pinnacle of world power and influence, a magnificent intellectual and cultural center, she entered upon a period of rapid decline because of a disastrous 27-year-long war that she fought with Sparta. And when Paul came to the city so many centuries later, Greece was just a remnant of that former glory. And yet, Paul would have had respect for it especially when he visited Athens, because Athens was the intellectual center of the world. Everybody looked to the Greeks for wisdom. 
And Paul himself had been educated with a wonderful classical education in Tarsus, as well as a religious education in Jerusalem. Tarsus was something of a daughter school of that great university in Athens, and so he would have thought coming to Athens much the way an American who was a graduate from one of our great universities, say Harvard or Yale, might feel going back to Britain and visiting Oxford or Cambridge, universities that are older and to be respected, but the kind of school that has done much the same thing. Paul felt quite at home in Athens. We're aware of it by the nature of the address he gave. He knew how these people thought, he knew how to speak to them, and he even knew their literature because he quotes, as you are well aware, from two of their poets. We don't know exactly which one because they both said the same thing, for in him we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. Aratus said that, so did Cleanthes, but Paul is well aware of all of that. So he must have come with a great deal of respect for this distinguished city and this distinguished university. And yet he was distressed as well because it was also a godless place. And those who were teaching there were teaching not only a false religion, but a very inadequate and misleading and harmful religion because it was a religion that had to do with idols. Paul was disturbed by the philosophy, and Luke, who records this for us in the book of Acts, tells us that the two dominant schools of thought in that day were those of the Epicureans on the one hand and the Stoics on the other. The Epicureans had developed their philosophy from a man named Epicurus, and their philosophy was something like this. They said life is filled with pleasure and pain, good and bad. And if you want to get through it well, the idea is to maximize the pleasure and minimize the pain. So you hunted around for all the good things that you could do and find, and you had to do with the bad things as little as you could get away with. And we've taken that word Epicurean, and in our language it's almost synonymous with hedonism, but the Epicureans weren't exactly hedonists. A hedonist is one who just abandons himself to pleasure entirely. We do have some of that around today anyway, but the Epicureans wanted to balance it off, but they wanted to have more pleasure than they did pain. They would work hard, recognizing the difficulties of an unrewarding job, but then they wanted to enjoy themselves as well. They wanted to take the fruit of their labor and live it up and enjoy, as we might say. The whole point of that, of course, is that we are surrounded by Epicureans in our day, whether or not we use that word for it. Many people live exactly that way. They know that life has a mixture of good and bad, pain and pleasure, but they want the maximum amount of pleasure. And so we see them day by day in the workplace, people grinding away to do what they have to do, not really enjoying it necessarily a whole lot, but then they want to live it up. And when you go around the city in the evenings, especially on the weekends, those are the Epicureans trying to drown out the difficulties of life by the pleasures. Then the others were the Stoics. They had come from a man named Zeno. There were actually two Zenos. This was one that came from Cyprus. The Stoics recognized the same sort of thing, good and bad in life, but their approach was different. They said, look, life is always filled with good things and bad things. You can't do anything about it. Those bad things are going to come. So although you can't manage the environment in which you live, you can at least manage yourself. What really matters is how you react to these things. And so when the bad things come, the solution is not simply to drown it out 
with better things or with pleasure. The thing to do is just endure it like a man. Keep a stiff upper lip. Hang in there. This produced some rather strong leaders and good philosophers too. Epictetus, one of the best of the Greek philosophers, was a Stoic. So was Marcus Aurelius, one of the great emperors. He was a Roman, of course, later, but he was trained by Greeks and a Stoic in his philosophy. Not a bad philosophy, but rather grim. You see, if the first philosophy, maximum amount of pleasure, minimum amount of pain, left you without any basis for values, the Stoic philosophy left you without any basis for hope. All you had to do is grin and bear it. And as I look around in our culture today, it seems to me I see an equal number of Stoics. I see them walking down the street all the time, grim faces set hard against the difficulties of life, hanging in there but without any joy and certainly without any hope of redemption or glory or blessing or life to come. And that's what Paul confronted, and he began to speak to them. Paul was troubled undoubtedly by their false philosophy, but most of all, as we read the story, he was troubled by their idolatry. And there's a perfectly good reason for that. The philosophy is the fruit of the religion. If you have a high view of God, you'll have a high philosophy, and you'll have a good way of living. If you have a low view of God, you won't rise higher than your view of God, and you'll live in a low way. And so he recognized that all of the errors of the Epicureans and the errors of the Stoics really were traceable to this very basic thing. They did not know God. And so not knowing God, what they had done was wrecked idols, imaginary and false gods to take the true God's place. The city was full of idols. One of the ancients said in describing Athens, it was easier to find a god in Athens than to find a man. What he meant by that is that everywhere you went, there were idols, and that's what Paul saw. He recognized that it was a proof of religion in a certain sense. They were very religious, and of course they were religious in an ignorant way. And so he began to preach to them the message of the true God. Now that's what our culture needs to hear. I'm struck as I think over Paul's approach to the pagan world, the fact that he began at the beginning with the doctrine of God. It didn't presume on any sound religious knowledge on the part of the people to whom he spoke. You know, there's an enormous difference between the preaching of Paul as he went out into the pagan world and the preaching of Peter, who preached largely to the Jews. You think of that great sermon that he preached on Pentecost, where you had many Jews and also religious people who understood something of the traditions of Israel, who had come to Jerusalem for the feast. Peter simply started in by quoting well-known passages out of the Old Testament. And what was unique about his preaching is that he said, it's all been fulfilled. It was fulfilled in our time in Jesus of Nazareth. People who heard him understood what he was talking about, but Paul couldn't do that among the Greeks and the Romans, they wouldn't have had the faintest idea what he was talking about. The Jewish gods, Sinai, Moses, the law, the history of Israel, none of that would have meant anything to them. So he began with the doctrine of God. And as I think about that, it strikes me that that is also the way the Bible presents the message, because the Bible doesn't start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Bible starts with Genesis, and the very first words of the Bible are these, in the beginning, God. The real problem is that we don't know God. We don't have the faintest idea in a pagan culture who God is and what he's really like. And so Paul begins at that point 
And he leads them step by step through sound thinking about God in order that at the end of this process of thought they might repent of their sin and seek him out, knowing, as Paul says, that he can be found in Jesus Christ. I want you to think about the outline of this a little bit. First of all, he has an introduction. And the introduction is really rather clever. He's been walking around the city, and he's noticed all these idols. He says, one of them struck me particularly. It was an idol to an unknown God. I think, and I'm sure Paul would have expounded on each of these points at much greater length than we have them here in the book of Acts. This is just a brief outline so we know what he talked about, but he would have lectured maybe for hours, certainly for a long time. He would have expounded that. He would have said, look, I see all these idols. You're worshiping all kinds of gods, and I see this one. And it says to the unknown god, that, of course, symbolizes it all. The reason why you have so many idols is that you don't know who the true god is. If you knew the true god, you wouldn't have all the idols. It's an interesting thing, isn't it, that when people abandon the true god, they don't become irreligious. They become religious in a multiplicity of ways. Someone has said, when you don't believe in God, you don't end up believing in nothing, you believe in anything. And of course, that's what we have in our culture today. We can trace that in the Western world as our culture from the Enlightenment on has rejected the Christian view of God. In the Middle Ages, people really did have something like a Christian worldview. They didn't all know God, of course. They certainly weren't all Christians. There was a great deal of superstition and other errors besides, but they had what is generally called a theistic worldview. That is, there is a God. He's a personal God. He controls history, and furthermore, he's a moral God, and he stands at the end of history as a judge, and people really did operate within that framework. They didn't always do what they should do, but they were somewhat afraid of a God before whom they would have to stand in the last day. Now, that was abandoned at the time of the Enlightenment. Theism passed over into what's called deism, Deism still maintained a belief in God, but not a God that was involved. It's sort of an abstract, distant God. There's always an image that's used for that. It's the God who's like a clockmaker. He makes that intricate machine. He puts it up on the shelf. He winds it, and then he doesn't touch it anymore. In the age of the Enlightenment, lots of people were saying that. Many of our founding fathers in this country were deists. They believed in God, but it wasn't the God of the Bible. The interesting thing about deism is it didn't last very long only about 200 years. And the reason it didn't last, of course, very easy to see, if all you need is a God at the beginning, why do you even need a God at the beginning? Maybe all you really have is matter. Maybe matter is eternal, not God being eternal. And so deism very quickly passed over into the materialism or the naturalism, which really describes the culture in which we live. Nothing out there except what you can see and touch and handle and manipulate by various scientific laws. That's where you throw out God. The difficulty with that is that you really can't live with that very long. Because if there's nothing there but matter, there's no standard by which any kind of action may be judged. And initially people say, well, that's wonderful because I can do anything I want. Who's to say that it's wrong? That's where people are today. I do what I want. Who are you to tell me that it's wrong? That sounds like freedom. But the problem with it is that if there's nobody there to tell you that it's wrong, there's nobody there to tell you when you do good either. The bottom line of that is that what you do doesn't really matter. And what you do doesn't matter, you don't matter. You're just a cosmic accident, and people really can't live with that. And that's why in our time, we've seen it in our generation, you have a quest or a hunger after something else. The media talks about it as spirituality. 
And it's coming in all sorts of forms. You have the Eastern religions coming in, you have the New Age movement, and the New Age movement is the final bottom rung of this departure because all the New Age movement really means is when you talk about the multiplicity of gods, every one of us is God. You have as many gods as you have people. Shirley MacLaine embodies that. She runs down the beach at Malibu, waving her hands in the air. She says, I am God. Absolute insanity. But you see, that's what happens when people turn their back on God. They don't become irreligious. They have all kinds of religions. And the ultimate religion is the religion of the self. And so Paul comes into that kind of a climate, that kind of a culture, and he says, I'm here to tell you about the true God. Now, what do we know about the true God? Well, he has three points, and then he makes a conclusion. The first point is that God is the creator, made all things. It's what verse 24 is all about. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he doesn't live in temples built by hands. And that tells you something about him, but it also tells you how you can know him, at least in part, because what it really means is that God... The true God has not left himself without a witness. You say, what's the evidence for God? The universe is the evidence. You look out there and you see plants and animals and planets, and the universe that is intricate in the extreme, and the only explanation of that is that God has made it. It doesn't tell you a whole lot about God. It doesn't tell you that God is loving. It doesn't tell you anything about the gospel. You don't learn about the cross or the way of salvation by studying nature, but you sure learn about God. And Paul, who develops that more fully in the first chapter of Romans, and probably did on this occasion, although we don't have his identical words, puts out that what you learn from nature is that there is a God and that he's all-powerful and that everyone can see it because it's perfectly displayed. Now, it is true that people don't want to accept that. The reason is not the lack of evidence, as Paul explains it. The reason is that we really don't like the God who is there. You see, we prefer our idols, because we make our idols, and we make our idols, we control our idols. And so we really are the God, and our gods become whatever we want them to be. They don't get in the way if there's something else, something bad we want to do. And the reason we don't like the true God, who is the creator, who is there before it all and made it all, is that we can't change him. If he's God, he's got to be omnipotent, that is all-powerful. He's got to be omniscient, he's got to know all things, he's got to be omnipresent, that is everywhere. In other words, as Paul says here, he is the Lord. We don't really want a Lord. And so we turn our backs on that God and we go our own way. It's what the Greeks had done. It's what our culture has done as well. But God is nevertheless the creator. And then secondly, Paul talks about God being the sustainer of all things. That's what the next verse is about, verse 25. He, God, is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. It's not just that God made you. God keeps you moment by moment and day by day. It certainly keeps the universe. Some people have suggested, theologians, but maybe scientists as well, that if there were not a power there holding it all together, it would all fly apart. And certainly you would fly apart or die or be gone. When God gives you breath to breathe. He gives you food to eat. He gives you shelter so you have a place to sleep. He gives you relationships so you can develop as a human being. God is the source of all that. He is the sustainer. And what that means is that God provides for you. It's not a case of you providing for God. 
You have a bizarre kind of theology today that goes by different names. I suppose most often it's called the openness of God. What it really means is that God is finite and he's developing. He doesn't know all things. He certainly doesn't control all things. He certainly doesn't know what's going to happen. But we kind of contribute to God by our experience. And so he looks at us to see what we do. Oh, that's very interesting. You know, I didn't know that. He learns from us. We're contributing to the knowledge and the power of God. Absolute absurdity. And certainly that's what Paul would say. Paul would say, anybody who thinks like that is spiritually crazy. You're out of your mind to think that somehow you can control God. God controls you, which is the point he gets to next. He talks about God as creator, then as the sustainer, and finally God as the ordainer of all things. Verse 26, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. Now, we call that the hidden counsels of God. What that means is that we don't understand everything that God is doing. We don't know it. It's hidden because it's hidden in God. And the only things we do know is what he reveals to us. He reveals a lot. That's what the Bible is full of. It tells us what God has been doing in history, preparing for the coming of Jesus Christ, and what he's doing since, as that gospel of Christ is preached throughout the whole world. But the details of that, how it happens, just aren't revealed to us. They're hidden in the counsels of God. It doesn't mean that he isn't in control. He is. And all that happens, happens because he's determined these things in advance. Now that's the doctrine. That's the teaching about God. And Paul gets to the point of applying it all, and he says, look, here's the conclusion. If God is the creator and the sustainer and the ordainer of all things, if he has created you and he's given you life and he sustains it and he ordains even where you should live and all other things besides, then you owe it to God and to yourself to seek that God out. That's your obligation. But of course, the problem is that we don't do it. And the reason we don't do it is what I explained earlier. We don't do it because we don't like the God who is there. Listen, verse 27, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him, even though he's not far from any one of us. Very interesting verb he uses there, this verb, reach out after God, that we might reach out after him. It occurs in the Odyssey, Homer's great epic, and it's part of that story in which the Cyclops, the one-eyed monster, giant, has captured Odysseus and his men, and they're in the cave. And they wonder how they're going to get out because this man has them there. He's eating them one by one. And finally, Odysseus, the wily Greek, figures out how to do it. He gets them drunk, and then he sharpens a stake, and he puts out his single eye. And so the Cyclops is blind, but he hates the men who have done it, and he's groping around to try and find them. He's there at the front of the cave. They have to get out. They finally do, but he's groping around, you see. That's the very word that Paul uses here. He says, God is revealed these things in nature in order that we might grope around. Perhaps by his grace eventually find him. It points to our spiritual blindness. We haven't the faintest idea in ourselves of what God is like unless he reveals himself. But it is nevertheless our duty to seek in order that we might, by the grace of God, eventually find him. We don't do it, of course. What we've done is made idols. And because of that, what we need to do is repent. You see, when Paul was preaching to the Athenians, he didn't preach about their gross immorality, though it was certainly a disgrace and he could have done it. And he didn't preach about the arrogant intellectualism of that metropolis, though he could have done that as well. There was a sense in which they didn't know any better in those areas. 
When he talks about the doctrine of God, they do know better. The evidence is there in nature, and he says they have a responsibility to repent. So do we. And we're guiltier than the Greeks at this point, because although there may have been some excuse for their ignorance, there certainly is no excuse for ours. Jesus Christ has come. He has been proclaimed. We have the Bible. There is teaching and Christian literature virtually everywhere. So are we going to do it? What he does as he gets to the end of this address is to provide a few encouragements. We would call them inducements to repent. The first is this. God has been patient. He's overlooked your ignorance for a long time. Could we say as we speak to our age, God is patient. He has even overlooked your rebellion against knowledge for a very long time. I would be very surprised if in a congregation this size, on a Sunday like this, we don't have many people that fit exactly this character. They know something about God, they've heard the gospel, and they have been refusing to come because they don't want to repent of their sin. They don't want to turn from it. They want to go on with their Epicurean or Stoic ways. What Paul is saying, listen, one reason why you should repent and turn is because God has been patient with you. He's been very patient. The very fact that you're alive right now is evidence of that. Don't presume upon it. You say, well, God's patient. Maybe he'll be patient longer. I don't have to worry about it. That's a foolish way of thinking. God withholds his judgment to give you time to repent, but you must repent. And then there's this second inducement. He says that God commands all men everywhere to repent. Sometimes, you know, we present Christianity as if it's a gentleman's religion. God would never force anybody or command anybody. He just sort of says to us, well, you know, why don't you try this? Christianity is nice. You know, it might work as well as what else you're doing. Why don't you kind of try it out for a little bit? That is not the way the gospel is presented. You see, God says you need to repent, and not only that, you must repent. And as a matter of fact, I command you to repent. That's what God is saying here. This is God's Word. This isn't my Word. God is speaking to you right now if you're in that category. He's saying, don't say God is patient, it doesn't matter. God is patient, but it matters, and He's saying, repent. That's His command. And then the third inducement is this. It's where the resurrection comes in. God has appointed a final day of reckoning when Jesus will be the final judge. Verse 31, He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is evidence that God does not ignore sin, that justice will be meted out, and that Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, is going to be the judge in that last day. How are you going to meet him? One day you're going to stand before him. That's what Easter is all about. We're not talking about something that happened 2,000 years ago and is all over. Jesus lives. That's how we begin our services. Christ is risen. He's coming again as judge. You're going to have to stand before him one day. You see, you say, well, I should repent. I should seek him out. Where might I find him? You find God in Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Well, the challenge of Easter is that you might do that and find salvation. You know, you come to the end of this story and you can't help but ask the question whether Paul was discouraged at all, whether he succeeded here. He didn't seem to have a great number of converts. And other places where he had been, he seems to have left the church behind. As far as we know, he wasn't able to do that in Athens. It's very hard to preach to intellectuals and hedonists and idolaters, just as it's very hard to preach to people living in the United States of America today. 
But Paul did it. And God says that when his word is preached, when it goes forth from his mouth, it never returns void. It always accomplishes what he pleases. And certainly it did here. He preached to these Athenian philosophers, and many of them laughed. Some laughed him to scorn. It uses that very word. Others said, well, it's interesting. You know, we'll hear about this a little bit more. Intellectuals always do that. But it also said a few believed. One was Dionysius. He was a member of the Areopagus, that very court. Another was Damaris, a woman, and there were a few others. It doesn't say how many others, but it's plural, so there were at least two. There were at least four that were converted. And it makes me think that our responsibility today is not with numbers, but with faithfulness and proclaiming the true God and calling men and women to repent and come to Him. And that's what I ask you to do. Indeed, in the name of God, I command you to do it. Because God takes this seriously, and He will not allow His Son, Jesus Christ, to be held in contempt by you or anyone. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we are reminded year by year and indeed Sunday by Sunday of what you accomplished in raising Jesus Christ from the dead. We would pray that you would keep us from regarding it merely as a nice story or keep anyone from leaving here today and going off and saying, well, you know, I'll just Think about that. I'll put it off for another time. There's no evidence that those who postponed the decision on the day of Paul's preaching in Athens ever came to faith. But rather, by your grace, would you draw men and women to Jesus Christ, where they will find you, find you to be the Savior who has provided in Christ the perfect sacrifice for their sins. We pray in Jesus' name. You're listening to the Bible Study Hour with the Bible teaching of Dr. James Boyce, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-488. 1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. For Canadian gifts, mail those to 237 Rouge Hills Drive, Scarborough, Ontario, M1C2Y9. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support of this ministry. 